Good morning. This is 2 Corinthians 12, 1-10. through 10. I must go on boasting, although there is nothing to be gained. I will go on to visions and revelations from the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether it was in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, but God knows, was caught up to paradise. He heard inexpressible things, things that man is not permitted to tell. I will boast about a man like that, but I will not boast about myself, except about my weaknesses. Even if I should choose to boast, I would not be a fool, because I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain, so no one will think more of me than is warranted by what I do or say. To keep me from becoming conceited because of these surpassingly great revelations, there was given me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan, to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weakness, insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Thanks, Forrest. Good morning. morning. Now, when we read the scriptures... We see God's power displayed in a variety of ways, don't we? And we see him wiping out huge armies of the enemy for Israel. We see him healing people in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. We see God raising the dead through the Old Testament prophets, through Jesus. We see all kinds of miraculous ways that God intervenes in our world. And so here's the question for me and for you this morning. Here in Boise in 2014, in our lives, in my life, in your life, where is the power of God most clearly seen? I mean, how come we don't see those kinds of things that are described in the scriptures very much? Where is God's hand most visible in our lives today? It's important we understand that. How is God's power to be seen in our world today? In New Testament days in Corinth, as Paul's writing this letter of 2 Corinthians to them, the super apostles were taking pride in the fact that at least they claimed to have had visions from God God spoke to them in dreams, apparently, or so they said. There had been healings. They emphasized speaking in tongues as a visible expression of God's power being upon them. They spoke charismatic messages, and people had dramatic responses to their messages. And so they saw God's power as being evident in these outward manifestations, these more exotic spiritual experiences And they were criticizing Paul because he didn't brag about those kinds of things. So he wasn't as good as an apostle as they were, so they said. And the Corinthians were buying into that thinking. 
that the true power of God is displayed in these outward, exotic kind of spiritual manifestations. But we have the same struggle, don't we, as the Corinthians? I mean, we think, God, how come you don't show yourself more? We want to see your power. Wouldn't you be so glorified if you would just heal so-and-so from her cancer? If you'd just intervene in my child's life, if you'd take away this whatever disease I struggle with. But Paul, in our passage today, gives us one of the most amazing principles of God's kingdom. One of the most important things for us to grasp as New Covenant, New Testament believers. And it's the opposite of how we as humans tend to think about the difficulties and struggles we face. Paul is saying, just to summarize, God's power is most evident today, not in those flashy outward kinds of things, but God's power is seen best in our weakness. Pray with me. Lord, we confess that this is crazy for us. This is so different than the way we tend to think, that your power might be seen best in our weakness. Oh, how we need our minds to be renewed this morning. To understand this from your perspective, may your spirit break through our hard hearts and our closed minds to help us understand what it means to have your power be visible in our weakness. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Paul begins this passage, the first just read, chapter 12, verses 1 through 10, with a description of his revelation that he had, this vision he had in verses 1 through 6. He begins this way, I must go on boasting. It's necessary for me to boast. Now, Paul doesn't like to boast, right? I mean, in fact, that's his point, is that in this whole section, it's foolish to boast in anything, as, but as we've just sung about, in Christ alone. But he's trying to communicate some truth to the Corinthians that they don't seem to hear very well in direct teaching, and so he's playing the game of the super apostles by quote-unquote bragging, but doing it his way. He's doing it only to teach them truth, to show them that in the kingdom of God, boasting really is foolish. And he even says that. He says, I must go on boasting, though there is nothing to be gained by it. But I'll go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. You see, he's saying essentially boasting is foolish, and so are the super apostles. They're foolish. But for a little bit, I'm going to play this game. But it's an encouragement and a reminder to us that we need to be careful and not trust in leaders who boast about themselves who boast about all the great things that they are accomplishing. Oh yeah, they may say, well, God did it through me, but when they boast in themselves and what they are accomplishing, that's someone we should be very careful about following or listening to. So Paul goes on to this revelation and he says, hey, it's from the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven, whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. 
He speaks in the third person here, doesn't he? But who is he really talking about? If you've looked at the passage, it's himself. This is something that Paul himself experienced. So why does he speak in the third person? Well, I think it's part of what he's doing here and kind of playing this game. He's saying, look, I experienced something incredible, but I don't even want to have any hint that I'm actually bragging about it. That's why he says, well, there's this man who experienced something, and I'd rather brag about him than about myself. He's distancing himself from it. Unlike those who say, hey, God gave me this great revelation, or God spoke to me and told me this, or God this, God that. You see, Paul doesn't do that. And he says, so I had this revelation some 14 years before. When would that have been? Remember last week we talked about that great failure in Paul's life when he was let down by the basket over the wall in Damascus, and it was humiliating for him. And then he ended up in the wilderness for some 10 years. It was during that time in the wilderness when it was no one but him and God that he had this amazing revelation. And he says, this man was caught up to the third heaven. He also uses the description paradise. Now, don't be confused about what he's saying here. Some groups, some cults have taken this to say, oh yeah, there's many levels of heaven and if you do really obey God, you get to the highest level. Or, you know, that's not what Paul is saying here. When he talks about three levels of heaven, the word for heaven in the Old Testament and the New is also used to describe simply the sky, the atmosphere. And so he's saying the three levels of heaven he's describing, number one, the lowest level is simply our sky where the clouds and the birds dwell. The second level is space, outer space, where the sun and the moon and the stars exist. And the third level is the place where God dwells. It's the heavens, the invisible realm around us. And he says, I I was caught up in this amazing experience to this third heaven, into the very presence of God. And it was such an amazing event. He says, I can't even begin to describe it. There are no words. It's inutterable. I can't even tell you if my body was present with me. He says that twice. He says it was such an amazing event that I can't even begin to to talk about it. It's a reminder to us, folks, that heaven is so far beyond our comprehension that if we could even get a glimpse of it, we couldn't describe it anyway. It's so awesome. It's so amazing. It's beyond our understanding. The Scriptures try to describe it in words that we can understand. The streets are gold. There's no light because God is the light. There's no suffering. There's no pain. But All those words are simply incredibly inadequate because it's so far beyond anything that we have ever experienced here. Blaise Pascal, who is a great Christian thinker in the 1600s, talks about an intense religious vision that he had. And he immediately recorded the experience in a brief note to himself, which began, Fire, God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, not the God of the philosophers and the scholars. And he kind of rambled on and then he ends with, I will not forget thy word. Amen. This note that describes his vision, he never shared with anyone. He sewed it in the lining of his coat and carried it with him until he died and it was found after he died. You see, he'd experienced the vision, but it was beyond anything he could even describe. Fire. 
God. <laughs> wow. But it changed his life. It turned him around. You see, if someone claims to have actually had a vision of God, it will be something they can't even describe or talk about. <laughs> and Paul goes on to say in verses 5 and 6, he says, wow, this vision was amazing, but you know, on behalf of this man, I'll boast, but on behalf of my own self, I won't boast, except about my weaknesses. But if I should wish to boast, it would be true. <laughs> it would be true. I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth, but I refrain from it, so no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. Paul says, you know, I could boast about my visions. I could boast about my conversion on the road to Damascus and the flash of light. I could boast about all that stuff, but he said, but I choose not to because I do not want you to think more highly of you, of me than you should. I don't want to elevate myself because I don't want you focusing on me. I want you focusing on Jesus. That's the attitude of a good leader. You see, that's the problem with flashy experiences, you think, God, why don't you give me a vision like you gave Pascal or Paul or whoever? Well, it's because we have a tendency in our evil human hearts to make it about us, to somehow use it to promote ourselves and think how great we are, to glorify ourselves and not the Lord. And that's why I think God doesn't give us more of these kinds of experiences, because we would misuse them and take pride in them ourselves. And Paul says, I will not do that. Here's, in fact, he says, what I will boast about, not that experience, though I'm as good as the super apostles who say they've experienced all this stuff. No, what I will choose to boast about, he says, is my weaknesses. So he goes on in verse 7 to talk about this thorn that was given to him so to keep me from being coming conceited from exalting myself because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations a thorn was given me in the flesh a messenger of satan to harass me to torment me to keep me from becoming conceited or exalting myself so paul says i received a thorn Something difficult, something painful. What is this thorn? This week, my wife Jeannie was walking across our floor barefoot and stepped on a piece of glass. It cut her foot. And she had me look at it and she said, is it still in there? It can, feels like it's in there. And I said, I don't, can't feel it. I can't seem to get it out. I, I think it's gone. She started walking on it again and she said, it's not gone. <laughs> it's still there. She, she did finally get it out, but it's very descriptive of the thorns we face. What Paul's talking about is a thorn that's always there and it's irritating and it's painful. In fact, he says it was given to torment him. The root of this word thorn is actually in classical Greek. It's used of a spike in which people were impaled to put them to death. He's not talking about some little tiny piece of cheatgrass that kind of irritates it because it gets in your socks when you're walking through the sagebrush. <laughs> He's talking about something that's really, really painful and hard to deal with. And then he says, it was given to torment him. 
That word that's used there means to beat repeatedly. What he's talking about is something in his life that every time he started to get up and feel like, okay, I'm getting my balance again, he got knocked down again. And he'd try to get up and it would knock him down again. And it was irritating and difficult and it did not go away. It's something in your life that always keeps you off balance. What was specifically this thorn? Paul does not tell us. It's interesting to look how in, throughout church history the way they viewed this thorn. The early church, because they went through so much persecution from their enemies in the Roman Empire, they saw the thorn as adversaries. The persecution that Paul experienced, perhaps. Could be. The medieval church, because of their particular struggles, thought that Paul's thorn was probably sexual temptation, something he always struggled with and could not overcome, a sexual issue in his life. The reformers, Luther, Calvin, that period, the Protestant reformers, tended to view it more as kind of a spiritual temptation, a temptation toward pride, self-dependence, those kinds of temptations. The modern church today, I think, again, it's because we live in such a materialistic world. It's interesting to think about church history and how we view things based on our culture. But because we're so materialistic, I think, our modern view tends to be that it was something physical in his life, that the thorn was perhaps migraines, perhaps epilepsy, perhaps malaria, Perhaps an eye disease. We know he struggled with some eye problems. Maybe it was anxiety or depression, some kind of mental disorder that he struggled with. Some have even said, well, maybe it was a nagging wife. (laughs) Well, we know at this point that wasn't true because Paul says in 1 Corinthians that he was not married. He was single. Now, he was probably married at some point in his life, but not at this point. What we do know about it is that Paul says, I prayed three times for God to remove it. I hated this thorn. It tormented me. It was hard. It was painful. And I wanted it gone. So I prayed three times that God would take it away. And I don't think we should think of this in terms of, oh, God, take this away. God, take this away. God, take this away. Oh, well, I guess he's not. No, I think he wrestled with God for long periods. And then he went through wrestling again and then wrestling again. But he finally came to a point where he realized, God, I am willing to accept your answer now. And your answer is no. You are not going to take this away. You are asking me to live with this. He heard from God that that was the answer. And that God was saying, as we'll go on to see in a moment, I will give you the grace to live with it. My grace will be enough. My grace will be sufficient, as we've been singing about all morning. It will provide for you, so hang in there. But we think, don't we, that, but God, if, if this is all about your glory, if it's really about you, then wouldn't you be glorified far more if you would just take this thorn away? If your power would just zap my problem and get rid of it, whatever it is. And God says, no, that would not glorify me more. 
that's not part of my plan. See, the reason I think Paul is so vague about what his thorn is and doesn't tell us is so that whatever your thorn is, whatever my thorns are, it fits. This is a description of your struggles and your problems in your life. And we just think, if I didn't have this problem, Lord, I could really serve you. Take this thorn away. God, how much more could I do for you if I didn't have these migraines or heart problems or my sinful pride and self-centeredness that I battle all the time? If I didn't have this difficult relationship, if I didn't have fill-in-the-blank? And God says, no. Your health problem, your anxiety, your depression are part of my bigger plan. Think for a minute with me. Who gave this thorn to Paul? It says, was given to me, a thorn was given to me, a messenger of Satan. So did God give this to Paul or did Satan? Well, the answer is yes. <laughs> right. <laughs> A and B. You see, God is the one who gives it to us. Now it's a messenger of Satan, and Satan, as a destroyer, wants to use our suffering, the pain in our lives, to destroy our faith, to cause us to end up in resentment and anger, bitterness. Satan is dangerous. He wants to destroy us. But we know from Scriptures that God in His sovereignty is over Satan. Satan can do nothing that God does not allow him to. And that we get these, buff, these thorns, this buffeting from Satan that attacks us. But God wants to use it in a bigger purpose to help us depend on Him more. Satan is just a pawn in God's greater plan for His own people. We know that from the book of Job, right? Where we actually get a glimpse into heaven where God says, hey, isn't my servant Job, isn't he a great guy? And Satan says, well, you just put a hedge around him. If you'd let me at him, boy, he would, he would turn his back on you. And God gives him opportunity to buffet Job, to send thorns into his life and tremendous suffering. And though Job really struggles with it, he never turns his back on God. And God uses it to help Job get to know God in a deeper way than he ever could have otherwise. You see, God has a bigger plan in the thorns he allows into our lives that is bigger than Satan could even begin to know. So what is God's purpose in giving us thorns? Actually, this verse, I think, gives us some clear purposes of the thorns. Number one... Paul says, this thorn was given me to keep me from exalting myself. In other words, thorns are given to our li- in our lives to humble us. Frankly, what this suggests to me is that my self-dependence and my arrogance and my pride are such a horrible problem that God has to send thorns into my life to humble me so I will be broken of my pride. I like the way Ray Sedman puts it when he says this, We are taught from childhood that the way to become proficient and competent and accomplish our aims and desires is to develop our self-confidence. 
This is what destroys human life. Self-confidence is not intended to be our strength, but rather it's to be our confidence in God. We were intended to face life recognizing we are weak, ineffectual, and unable, that it might drive us back upon the one who is totally adequate and can be our total strength. This is the way God intended us to live. Therefore, the spirit of self-confidence is the most deadly lie that has ever been perpetrated upon the human race. And yet we've all bought into that lie. So God sends thorns into our lives to humble us and break us of our self-confidence. Secondly, in this passage, verse 9, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is made perfect in weakness. God gives us thorns to keep us weak, to highlight our weaknesses. So his power can be displayed through our weakness. So thorns remind us constantly that we are weak. And then third, thorns help us learn to depend on his grace rather than our strength. My grace is sufficient for you. My grace is enough. My grace is all the resources you need to handle life. You don't need life to go well. What you need is my grace every moment. And we think, I could never handle what that person's handling. Or I, I, I'm facing a cancer diagnosis. I cannot face what's ahead. And God says, look, look in the bag of grace that I've given you. You have enough to handle whatever thorns are in your life. So trust me. And that's what thorns do. They humble us, they keep us weak, and they help us learn to depend on His grace rather than our strength. God gives us the grace not to remove the thorn, but to live with the thorn in our lives. So trust in my grace, he says. I'm struck by and reminded as I thought about this passage of what Jesus says in John chapter 7 where he stands up at the feast, the great feast, and he says this, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out and said, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. I love that picture where if we just come to Jesus and drink, then out of us will flow rivers of of living water. But have you ever thought about how does that water really get released so others can drink of that living water, the life of Christ in us? How does that happen? How does it get released? Because my experience of my own heart and my own pride is that my pride is like a dam and God's pouring his life into me, but my pride holds that back. I want to keep it for myself. But here's what the thorns do. The thorns poke holes in the dam of our pride so that the water can begin to leak out until the dam bursts and God's life can flow through us. It's that pride that keeps God's life from flowing to others. And so God gives us thorns to break down that pride so that his life can flow and his power can be perfected in our weakness, and others might be blessed. That's God's plan. That's His way. So Paul ends in the last couple of verses, 9 and 10, with reminding us of this principle that is 
upside down from the way the world looks at life. His power is made perfect in our weakness. His power is perfected. I'm I'm struck by that word he uses there. It's a word that means completed, most perfect, most visible, most real. His power is made most real in our weakness. Now, God displays his power in other ways. You look at nature. We're told in Romans 1 that his eternal power is seen in nature. And his power is seen in the miracles that he does do sometimes. But what Paul's saying is, but you really want to know where his power is most complete, which is most visible, which is most real in our everyday lives? It's in our weakness. Isn't that amazing? I mean, isn't that completely opposite what we would think? But that's the spiritual principle we need to begin to grasp if we are going to handle the thorns of our lives in a healthy way. That his power is most perfect, most complete in our weakness. I like the way Tim Keller puts it in his book, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering, where he describes this. He says, Dr. Paul Brand, a pioneering orthopedic surgeon in the treatment of leprosy patients, spent the first part of his medical career in India and the last part of his career in the United States. He wrote, In the United States, I encountered a society that seeks to avoid pain at all costs. Patients lived at a greater comfort level than any I had previously treated, but they seemed far less equipped to handle suffering and far more traumatized by it. In our modern Western culture, he goes on to say, Tim Keller, we live by the secular view. And the secular view is that this material world is all there is. And so the meaning of life is to have the freedom to choose the life that makes you the most happy. However, in that view of things, suffering can have no meaningful part. It's a complete interruption of your life story. It cannot be a meaningful part of the story. In this approach to life, suffering should be avoided at almost any cost or at least minimized to the greatest degree possible. That's the culture in which we live. That's the culture, even I think to some degree, that Paul lived in. Although I think ours is more extreme, that we live in this world where any kind of suffering, the thorns of our lives are just horrible and we don't know how to handle them. But in Christ, as new covenant believers, we can handle it because we see that it's a gift from God to do a great work in our souls and to release his power in a world that's desperate to see his power revealed. This is the great paradox, isn't it? Paul ends with. When I am weak, then I'm strong. Paul, that makes no sense. Don't you know logic? (laughs) When I'm weak, then I am strong, he says. But what Paul is saying is that feeling strong and self-sufficient is the problem. (laughs) I need to feel and know that I am weak and dependent on Christ if his life and power are to flow through me to a thirsty, watching world. And in verse 9, in fact, he says, without the thorns of life, 
His grace, His life, His power would not dwell in us. That's the end of verse 9. So that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Dwell upon me. God's power makes its home, in other words, in weak, struggling human beings who know that they are weak. That's the amazing principle that we need to get. So, if that's all true, then what is our part? Well, I think Paul gives us what our part is in all this. I think, number one, it's okay to pray for God to take away your thorn, whatever that might be. Whatever it is that you really struggle with, it's okay to pray and pray earnestly. God may choose to take it away in the greater scheme of His purposes and plans. Pray hard. But at some point, stop praying for God to take it away. I don't know that there's anything magic about three times, but I think pray earnestly. But if God's answer is no, that at some point you've got to accept God's answer and realize this is something God's given you as a thorn in the flesh to keep you off balance so you'll learn to be humble and depend on His life in you and be reminded of your weakness. So at some point, folks, we have to accept the thorn. It's those who will not accept the thorns that God puts in, his li- in your life that end up bitter and resentful, shaking their fist at God and unable to open up the dam so his life can flow. So number one, I think we're called to pray hard, but then accept that this is something God's given me for now. But I think it goes beyond that because the words that Paul uses in verse 10, for the sake of Christ, then I am content, is my translation, but some of your translations, I delight in my thorns. I don't think he's saying, hey, I'm so glad I got thorns. Yahoo! But I think he's saying we need to learn to be thankful because we see that God has a greater purpose in them to learn to be content, not just accept, but to learn to truly be thankful to God for the thorns He's put into our lives, to appreciate them as God's good gift to humble you, to break you of self-dependence, and to teach you to depend on His life and power. We don't like being weak and dependent, do we? (laughs) That's why we need thorns. You know, Jesus himself didn't have a sin nature and yet he chose in his humanity when he walked on earth to live a life of dependence and humility. He did nothing independent of his heavenly Father and that is the secret, folks, of the Christian life. And that's why we need thorns so that we might learn to be humble, to be broken of our self-confidence, our self-dependence and learn to depend on His strength, His power, His life in us. That's how His power gets released. Only when we are weak and broken is His power released. Only when irritating, painful thorns drive us to see our weakness and inadequacy. And we learn to embrace the thorns as a gift from His hand. Is His power released in us? Where is God's power most visible in our world today? It's in believers 
who have thorns given to them and they learn to accept them, embrace them, and let them accomplish their work as they learn to depend on Jesus. I want to close just with an email I received this week. This next chapter, this person writes, in 2 Corinthians is my life chapter, speaking of this particular passage that we're studying today. I can still remember when as a 17-year-old I thought I was a failure as a Christian because I was sick and couldn't get well. Either I was in sin or I didn't have enough faith to be healed, which meant in my mind that God wasn't pleased with me. I was brokenhearted. Thankfully, I was in the Word daily and laying on that bed in tears, God revealed to me some precious truth. It wasn't because I was in sin or that I didn't have enough faith to be healed, much to my relief, but because God could be strong in my weakness, just like Paul. To glory in weakness, struggles, and hardship. What a concept. Let's pray. Lord, how you, you turn our thinking around in a passage like this. We confess, Lord, we are way too self-dependent and we need the thorns you bring into our lives. Our sin, our self-dependence is so great that you had to go to the cross for us. Thank you for dying, taking the burden of our sin on you so that we could begin to learn to walk in newness of life, truly dependent upon you, letting your power flow through our weakness. And so as we turn now to take communion together, Lord, we celebrate you even as we face our own sin and struggles and weakness. And we thank you for dealing with our problem, our sin that has kept us from you. So we give you praise and thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.